as Tom mentioned earlier, I'm Emily. Nice to meet any of you if I haven't met you already. Um, if you're new to the 815, welcome. It's great to have you here. Um, so I've got the honor tonight of kicking off our new preaching series for this term, which is very exciting. Um, so we're really excited. As a community, we're going to be exploring um, the topic of what Jesus says to the church through the letters in Revelation. Now, I know that sounds slightly a little bit daunting. I feel like when anyone mentions Revelation, it's like, because um, the book often gets a bit of a reputation for being overly complex or a bit apocalyptic or a bit cryptic. Um, but fear not, this is going to be a great opportunity for us as the 815 community to take a time of digging in to what Jesus was saying to the church and is therefore still saying to his church now. It will be a great chance to pause and evaluate, to address where we might be getting a few things wrong here and there, and to be filled with the wisdom, the guidance, and the passion of the Holy Spirit to run after Jesus together as a church family. So I'm going to jump straight in to our passage for today. So if you have a Bible with you and you want to open it up, um, please turn with me to Revelation chapter 2, starting from verse 1. So this is the church, uh, the letter to the church in Ephesus, and it says this. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet, I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Okay. Wow. Uh, <laughs> so... Um, you might not be feeling as overwhelmed by that as I was the first time I read it. But anyway, we're going to jump straight in and um, just have a little look at what's happening here before we get into the meat of this. I'm going to bring us up to speed. So in the first chapter of Revelation, we see a guy called John, um, not the John who was one of the 12 disciples, a different John, um, still faithful holy man, but he came a little bit later on. So this John has been exiled to an island called Patmos. And he was exiled there because he was very outspoken about his faith. He preached a lot about Jesus. The Romans didn't like it. They were like, let's get rid of him um, and kind of silence his ministry. Um, so he's on this island, had a lot of time to pray and seek the Lord. Um, and whilst he was doing that, he had a visitation from an angel. And this angel had a message from Jesus directly to give to John about seven churches in western Turkey. That's church big C, so like churches across a whole city. Um, 
And this, then John wrote into the form of seven letters. And these are the letters we're going to be unpacking together over the next seven weeks. So in this book and the letter we're looking at tonight, as you might have clocked at the beginning of this reading, Jesus is referred to as the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. And this is said in chapter one as well. And it starts in chapter two. And so just to explain what that means, because the first time I read it, I was like, here we go already, Revelation being very strange and poetic. Um, It basically means that Jesus is the one who holds the seven angels assigned to the seven churches we're about to hear about, the seven angels in his right hand, and he walks among the seven golden lampstands, which are these churches. So he walks among them, as we know, by the power of the Holy Spirit. So to summarize, we've got John, exiled to an island, spends a lot of time praying, angel visits, it, visits him with a message from Jesus, John writes him down his letters, and that brings us to the passage we've just read. Our first letter of the seven is the letter to the church of Ephesus. So you may or may not have been thinking the same thing as me um, after we just read this, which was why the heck should I be fussed about a letter um, that was written to a place in Turkey thousands of years ago? Precisely. I was like, this is ridiculous. But then as I started to, to read this letter more and research and understand, I was reminded that as always, the words of Jesus in one way or another are timeless. He came to speak to John about these seven churches because of the various characteristics they hold or the things that they they struggled with and the problems that they had because all of those things would go on to relate to us throughout all of time. It's a letter to seven churches to be read by all of us to understand how the worldwide church should live out their faith for Jesus. And so when Jesus speaks, we're meant to listen. The things he had to say were important enough that he spoke, he sent, to a, sent an angel to a man who was in exile on an island to get this word out for the church for all of time to come. Not just for then, but for now and for however many years we have before Jesus comes back. Come now, Lord. Um, I'm kidding. <laughs> well, maybe not. Um, So as we unpack these letters together over the next few weeks, I have no doubt that there'll be at least be some parts in each of these letters that we can see relate to the world that we live in today or the church that we serve today. And this church in Ephesus, the city of Ephesus, really isn't that far off our own. Ephesus was a grand and a rich and a a place, a huge sphere of influence. It was geographically blessed by being near water. Sounds familiar. Um, but they were by the Euphrates. Um, more specifically, and it was, it was a perfect place to then be a hub of, of trade and good things. It was a city of great political influence and of great entertainment as well. And in many ways, that doesn't sound very far off the nation we used to live in. in. But in many ways, that made it a hard place to be a Christian. The reputation of the Ephesians across Asia were that of a people who, as William Barclay would put it, they were people who were fickle, superstitious, and immoral. And this is where Jesus' encouragement comes in. Because in a land of temptation and difficult people, there was a church, again, church, big C, full of people dedicated to the Christian faith, to being loyal to scripture, and hypervigilant when it came to, to weeding out false teachers and teaching. 
And so we can take heart from this same encouragement that even in a place like this, there were Christians who lived and thrived there. That even in a place like Ephesus, Jesus still had some encouragement to give to the Christians who were there. And he's doing this, the same for us today with the temptations we face in a nation that can be tricky to thrive amongst. He's trying to encourage us to keep persevering. Social media has many perks and downsides, as we all know. Um, but I have to confess, there's one thing that really, really gets my knickers in a twist more than anything else on social media. And that's when someone will post something along the lines of, of this. Um, I don't always do this all year round, but um, today I saw someone who was cold and hungry and homeless. Um, I didn't want to give them money, but I did like a huge shop for them, see pick below. And I bought them a new coat and I walked them to like this night shelter and I paid for them to get in. Um, and this person was so moved by my kindness that they like cried the whole way there. And it just reminded me that we have so much and so we should all do our little bit more to help someone in need. Um, excuse the Essex accent, that's how it always is in my head. I am from Essex, so it's allowed. Um, now, I'd love to say I'm over-exaggerating, but this is genuinely pretty much a, a post that I read on Facebook from a friend of mine back home. Um, and I don't know about you, but the reason these things wind me up is because I just think if you really cared about doing good in the first place, then you would do that from a place of integrity and willingness to do a good thing, not because you want to make a great social media post. But then it got me thinking, I know for me at least, maybe some of you out there as well, there's a deep desire within me somewhere to feel seen, to feel like someone's acknowledging when I get things at least even a little bit right, or, or even praise me when I'm, just, when I'm persevering and I'm trying hard. I think somewhere inside all of us really, even if it's very small, there is a desire to be seen and to feel known. And, and this is at the heart of Jesus' encouragement to us in this letter. He sees you. He sees all of your hard work and your perseverance and the resilience that you show. He sees your willingness to suffer for his name. And he wants to encourage you in that so much so that he sent an angel a few thousand years ago to encourage you in that even now. Now, I want to express that this isn't an invitation for us to strive really hard for Jesus as an attempt to earn his love. His love and his attention is already ours. We don't have to do anything to earn that. But what this shows us is that we serve and follow an incredibly kind and personable God who goes out of his way to say, I see you. I know when it gets hard and I'm proud of you for carrying on. So I'd love it if we could do something a little bit different. And let's just pause for a minute. And I'm going to encourage us to close our eyes. And just take a moment and just receive that encouragement from God. Just be still and let him speak to you that he sees you. Lord, thank you that you encourage us. And that you see us, and even though our attempts sometimes are small, that you love them anyway. And you love our heart that desires to pursue you. And our willingness to suffer for your name, Lord. Just pray over everyone in this room right now that they would know that you see them. And you're well pleased with them.
Thank you, Jesus. But here comes the but. <laughs> Unfortunately, sometimes our attempt at running hard, weeding out the lies and the liars, and working hard for God's kingdom can sometimes venture over into being perhaps a bit too orthodox or too ungracious or forgetting that the love, that love is at the heart of the gospel. The passage says, yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Jesus hits us with an encouragement and then he's got a challenge to push us and grow us. It sounds like a harsh one, but he isn't trying to condemn us. Jesus is trying to inspire us. Because sometimes we need a refresher. Sometimes we need to, to get something that makes us look up and think for a minute. To have a check-in, a look back, and a look forward. I remember when I first fell in love with Justin Bieber. Um, sorry, it's not anymore. It's okay, it's all weird. Um, I had resisted being a fan for a long time. I was like, I don't want to be like every other teenage girl out there. Don't worry, this was in my teenage years, it's not now. Um, I was like, I'm not going to be like all the other teenage girls. I will not learn the rap to baby. I won't be involved in any of this. I won't have a part of any of it. Um, but then I watched a video of him on an American chat show. And he was just so sweet and so kind. There was this cute little tiny girl who was desperate to see him. She's an absolute mega fan. And they surprised on the show with Justin Bieber. And he was just so gentle and kind to her. And she cried the whole way through, as I did when I watched the video. Um, and I just thought, wow, he's just so loving. And that was it for me. I was sold. I learned all the lyrics to every song. I watched every interview video I could find on YouTube. I got a massive poster for my bedroom wall. I went to see the documentary movie in the cinema. I went to see him in concert twice. I had a t-shirt and all the merch I could find. Um, at the time, most of my diary entries were about how great Justin was. I even gave him like a happy birthday shout out on March 1st, because that's when his birthday is. And it was mostly all I could think about, all I could talk about which I would like to highlight that I now know is idolatrous. And I'm not encouraging any of us to go and be super fan of the Beebs or anyone else. But at some point in all of that craziness, it got less exciting. Um, I, didn't think about him I didn't think about him every day. I stopped talking about him when he got in trouble with the police. Um, and frankly, I realized if I ever wanted to find real life love, that being obsessed, an obsessive super fan would turn off any guy that I met. <laughs> and so it was right for me to grow out of Justin Bieber. But it will never be good for me to grow out of Jesus. And if I really pursue Jesus with all that I have, it should never really be possible for me to grow out of him. There's a challenge here to not forsake our first love, to make sure we put all our energy into maintaining our relationship with Jesus, to tend to our holy fire, our fire of faith, to make sure that we keep chucking more wood on and breathing oxygen over this. And we do that just by staying close and committed to Jesus. And of course, it's not always going to feel like an absolute high. There are desert seasons. They are really a thing. But we do have an invitation right here that if we want to take it, an invitation to wake up every day and re-realize how awesome it is that we know and follow Jesus Christ. 
So there's that, but there's also a challenge here from Jesus to not forsake how we loved in the first place, how we loved when we first found Jesus. And that's really what the author John is trying to get out here as well. Tom Wright puts it in a really helpful way and says, it's easy to let this slip. It's easy to settle down into a vaguely comfortable existence, which puts its own needs first and sometimes last as well. And reading this really ruined me this week because God was waking me up to realize how true this is. It's so easy to get comfortable with God and comfortable in our walk with Jesus that over time, before you kind of know it, it's become all about us again. And particularly for the church in Ephesus, it was in the way of becoming too orthodox and too obsessed with discerning who the false apostles were that they actually became a lot like the Pharisees and a lot less like Jesus. They became too much about the law, about right and wrong, that they'd stopped loving people well. And so this is our chance now to, to read that challenge and let God search our heart as a church family to consider where we're not loving people well, where particularly we're being too hot on what's right or what everything's supposed to look like, what we want to experience or who we believe belongs and doesn't belong. And guys, it is really hard. Like it's quite painful to actually face where we get things wrong where we hold prejudice, where we judge wrongfully, and where we hide behind like biblical law and church traditions as a reason to not love someone really well. But it still happens and we still do it. And that's just not what Jesus teaches us. That's why he came to give us this challenge. He wants us to love like he loves, to love like we did when we first found him, like it was the best thing ever and we wanted the whole world to know. And in, in this passage, he presents us with three really simple but important things to do about that. The first is to remember. Remember what Jesus has done for us. If we, won't, if we don't want to lose our first love in the sense of our, our original zeal and passion for Jesus, then we have to put every effort into staying close to him and remembering all he's done for us. There's this, this great um, song that came up many years ago, and the lyrics say, when I think about Jesus and all he's done for me, when I think about Jesus and how he set me free, I can dance all night, clap all night, and sing all night. When we think about Jesus and take time to remember, it awakens our soul. It brings us back to our first love, because what's not to love about Jesus and all that he's done for us? So we are called to remember, and then we're called to repent. And I know this word makes us all go, oh, that sounds so intense, and that I'm just going to feel awful about it. But the beautiful thing about repentance is that it is beautiful, and it can be joyful. There's this really beautiful quote from um, a devotional Bible app, and it says, It is a grace that God acts faithfully while we have acted wickedly. It is a gift that he keeps covenants even when we do not. At the intersection of our lack and his goodness, may we return to him, remembering and cherishing what it is to be considered his. All promises are yes in the Savior who calls his wandering children home again and again. His kindness leads us to repentance 
And repentance isn't just saying sorry with every intention to go back and do that thing again. It's about turning our hearts around and say, Lord, I really don't want to live that way anymore. And I need your help to do that. And that's where repentance can be joyful because it sets us free. Like people in the Old Testament, they really got this. They knew the importance of being realigned with God. They knew the freedom of confession and the goodness of God when they repented and he showed them grace and mercy. Because we will 100% get a lot of things wrong in life. And so it's not about us trying to shy away from our mistakes, but it's about owning up to them at our earliest possible moment we can with Jesus. Acknowledging that we don't want there to be even a single second where there is a barrier between us and him because of our unrepentant hearts. So there's remembering, there's repenting, and the last one is do. To the early, early Christians, love was something that you do. There is a challenge here to love Jesus like we first did, we acknowledge that, but there's also a challenge here to love others like Jesus did. We must do, not to earn God's love or prove ourselves as some brilliant Christians, because we're never gonna be able to do that, but because in the Gospels, Jesus tells us the most important command, basically the one we absolutely must definitely, definitely, really, really, very, very must note down and understand and put into action is that we have to love God with all our heart, soul, and mind. And we have to love our neighbors. And sometimes we put so much into the first command that we begin to neglect the second. We can get so focused on loving God and making sure not to buy into false theology, to make sure we stamp out evil in our lives, or to make sure we're like the Ephesians, that we start running the risk of loving others quite terribly. We become like the Pharisees, so hell-bent on doing everything perfectly by the book, that we do that at real human beings' expenses. And when the church becomes ineffective, when it loses its Christ-centeredness and no longer shines brightly, then it fails to live up to and recognize what its whole purpose was in the first place. And that's exactly the point Jesus is making here. We need to wake up and rise up, otherwise he will remove the lamp from its stand. And that's, that's what he goes on to say. I think sometimes we can shy away from the fact that Jesus kind of makes threats because he's all big and he's all powerful and he doesn't do that because he's evil and he doesn't do that because he doesn't love us. He does it the, the complete opposite because he's good and he knows the right way and he knows what we need. And what this means is this whole lampstand thing, the lampstands of the church and what he's saying is if you don't come back to your first love and you don't repent, I will get rid of the church out of a city or out of a nation. He's not threatening our eternal existence with him, but he's warning us what will happen to his church. And if we don't think Jesus is being serious, well then guess what? The thriving church of Ephesus now ceased to exist. In 2022, it's the furthest thing from a nation, a city that passionately follows Jesus. And this isn't meant to terrify us, but it is meant to wake us up. The Bible isn't some distant text or some mystical writings that carry no weight now. Revelation isn't a bunch of apocalyptic hoo-ha. Jesus said, if you don't return, uh, don't repent and turn back to your first love, I'll remove your lampstand. And you can't tell me it's a coincidence that now Ephesus has no church. Sometimes we don't take Jesus seriously and we need to. Because all of the instructions and commissions that follow his death and resurrection were said for a reason. 
We need to understand the difference between things being won on the cross and things still needing to be done now. Like, in this challenge, Jesus isn't saying, I'll disown you and close the doors of heaven to you. (laughs) Because that salvation was won on the cross. And our eternity with him isn't dependent on earning his love and ticking off the boxes. But what is said here is is a big challenge that if we don't take what the Spirit says seriously to the churches, then entire nations can cease to worship Jesus if we're not careful. And that matters. We can't be on some selfish pursuit to make sure I get to heaven and sack everyone else off. We are one body. We were meant to be unified in one spirit. That's our calling. That's what we're told to do. Go and make disciples of all nations. What happens in a city where the church ceases to exist? And I really made myself think about this one. Like, Imagine our city. Imagine Oxford, the birthplace of the holy club. The place where just a few men gathered and a whole revival broke out. Seeing many come to Christ, a city full of thriving churches, really intelligent Christian theologians, two universities with really zealous Christian unions. Imagine having never been to Oxford and and having read all about it and thinking, wow, I need to go there and be inspired by these people. And then you get there and you walk down St. Aldate's and you turn right just after G&D's and you see a church that once saw many come to Christ, now boarded up with adverts about how it's gonna become a new nightclub or a new like quirky apartment building. And so then you run to the catacombs prayer room to find it's become some cool like basement cafe. And then you tear through libraries and find no Bibles or no gospel commentaries or no C.S. Lewis books or, or anything of the same sort. And so then you tumble out into Corn Market Street and you think, where should I go and who should I seek? And then you realize that the body of Christ doesn't exist in this city anymore because our lampstand was removed because we forsook our first love. The church is God's plan A and there's no plan B. And when plan A starts going wrong, you can't sack it off if there's no plan B. You have to work on it. You have to fix it. We're meant to be preparing the bride of Christ, the big church, the big C church is, is Christ's bride. We're meant to be preparing her. And Jesus is warning us not to forsake her. But the good news is, with all of these things, he finishes by telling us how we're meant to do this. And it's quite simple. We need to be people who listen to his Holy Spirit. Jesus gave us the Holy Spirit for a reason. So the time is now for the church to be a people who listen to God, who make room for the Holy Spirit to speak and to move. We need to listen to God and then be obedient to what he says because his way is best and because without him we can't overcome. And this whole passage comes into land talking about being victorious and then getting to eat from the tree of life. It's a bit like, what? I don't understand what that means. But what John's saying here is he's not talking about conquering death because Jesus has already done that, that's already won. This is about carrying authority over evil, about helping to be like standing strong in the face of adversity and temptation because we follow Jesus and stay close to him. We conquer not by fighting back at persecution, but by following Jesus. It's not about us, it's about the one that we love, the one who conquered death on the cross and the one who is now always with us and for us. And so much so that when all of this is over, 
and we are victorious. We get to eat from the tree of life in the paradise of God. And that part blows my mind because this is the same tree where it all went wrong in the beginning, where we rejected God and we didn't listen to him. And now he's saying if we're faithful and we don't forsake our first love and we repent and we love these people and we stand victorious in the face of all of this trouble, there's going to be a day when we get to eat from the tree and we get to feast from the tree and it's going to be good and it's good fruit that means we're going to live forever with Jesus. And that's just awesome. It's a big call. It was always meant to be. But we already know we're on the winning side. We already know that we have the most omnipotent, omnibenevolent, omniscient being in the entire universe going first into battle for us. Eternity is waiting for us. Paradise has a beautiful tree in it waiting for us to come and eat the fruit from it and where we get to live forever. It's all laid out for us. We just have to be patient, we have to endure, and we have to conquer all of this with love. Let's draw close to Jesus, guys. Let's be filled with his love, and then as his church, let's endeavor to love with a love that is so radical, so unearthly, so countercultural that it points to the Savior waiting to greet people into his eternal home. What a great thing that we get to do. Why don't we stand together? And we're just going to spend a minute waiting on this God who apparently wants to speak to us <laughs> and wants to help us. So just encourage you, do whatever you need to do to not be distracted. If you want to close your eyes, if you want to hold out your hands, it's just a way of saying, yeah, God, I'm just present with you. want to receive what you're doing. And I'm just going to pray, Holy Spirit, would you come? Thank you for this encouragement that you speak to your church, Lord, and we want to hear you.